All right, guys, let's go ahead and transition into the Word this morning. Uh, we're in the book of James, um, going to be in chapter 2. So go ahead and open your Bibles, open your devices, and go there <clears throat> to James chapter 2. It is page 1012 in uh, the Bibles around you if you're using one of those. My name is Joe Groppel, by the way. I don't think I introduced myself earlier, but um, just thankful for the opportunity to, to open God's Word with you. Um, so, James chapter 2, we're going to be in the second half this morning, verses 14 to 26. So, last couple months, uh, man, we've been in James for two, two and a half months, and all along the way, Steve, our, our, our normal uh, preaching pastor, our lead pastor, he has been uh, walking us through the book and bringing out this theme of worldliness in the book of James. Um, and remember what worldliness is. Worldliness is not... Um, it's not an external problem, it's an internal problem. It's, it's simply this, it's our desire to do life apart from God. And then the, the systems that we create so that we think we can do life apart from God. Um, it's trying to get the blessings of God apart from an actual relationship with God and dependence on God. Um, and the specific type of worldliness that James has been addressing in this letter is worldly religion, worldly religion. Um, Steve said this a few weeks ago, I think it bears repeating, the most dangerous thing to the human soul is worldly religion. The most dangerous thing to the human soul is worldly religion. How dangerous it is to our souls to live in such a way that we're giving ourselves over to this outward religious way of living, thinking that we are moving closer to God when in reality that way of life is moving us away from God. How dangerous that is to our souls. Specifically in our passage today, the, the, the specific type of worldly, worldly religion we're going to be looking at this morning is, is a religion that says, I, I profess faith. I, I believe, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe, in, I believe that He died on the cross where there is uh, belief, but there is, no, uh, there is no proof of that faith. Um, no proof of that faith in how the person actually lives. Sorry, I got distracted because I just realized I never gave the Dysons their gift. <laughs> Major fail on my part. Can, can someone from the family here? I'm sorry, totally, totally impromptu, right? Thank you. Thank you. I've got a lot of things spinning around in my mind. All right, thank you. Sorry about that. I'll have to apologize to Jordan and Jeremy. All right, let me try to regain my, regain my focus here. So um, the, the specific type of worldliness, worldly religion that, uh, that James is drawing our attention to here this morning in this passage is saying that I believe and yet there is no proof of that faith in how the person actually lives. This is worldliness. This is saying to God, God, I want your blessings. I want, I want your love and your grace and your forgiveness, and I want to I go to heaven when I die. But man, a relationship with you, I, I don't really need that. I mean, I, I've got this. i got this under control. I can be my own God. I don't really need to depend on you. If you can just take care of those blessings, that'd be great. i got everything else myself. Um, it's that kind of worldliness that James is addressing here this morning. He has weighty things to say to that kind of religion. So here's what James is specifically saying. This is kind of his main point. While he says that, that um, 
Yes, you become a Christian through faith in Jesus. It's, it's not of works. It's not earned. It's all through faith. But yet, James wants to tell us this morning, this faith is a kind of faith that will lead to works. This faith is a kind of faith that will result in works. Real, true, saving faith works. So, let's go ahead and, and actually read this passage together, all right? This is um, James 2, 14 to 26. We'll do a call and response at the end as well. James 2, 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of the Lord. All right, so right from the outset here, you can tell pretty easily what the big ideas in this passage are, right? Faith and works faith and works. In fact, James uses the, the two words together 26 times in the passage, all over the place. However, if you notice, I think you, I notice this, I think you'll agree, James never really steps back and gives us insight into what these words actually mean. So I feel like we need to just take a second here right at the outset and say, okay, what does faith mean and what do works mean, especially here in this passage, all right? So let's define faith and works. First, Let's start with faith. Faith, put very simply, is believing or trusting in something. Believing or trusting in something. Very simple to understand. We would all agree with that, I think. But, but faith is, is more than just believing something to be true or believing that something exists. So you can, you know, someone could believe in Santa Claus or believe in the Easter Bunny or b believe in Area 51. Um, you, you know, that's, that's belief in a sense, but this, is, this isn't really true faith. Um, faith is more than just intellectual assent. Faith is not merely uh, just acknowledging the existence of something. Um, we see this here in the passage, actually. Look at verse 19 uh, with me. I think it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So James there at the beginning, he says, you believe God is one, He's referring to a verse from the Old Testament that was called the Shema. Um, very common, very basic doctrine to the Jewish people. Almost everybody knew it. Everybody agreed to it. Um, almost kind of like their John 3.16, I think. And James says, okay, you believe God is one. Okay, that's nice, good. You know what? The demons believe that too. 
Um, and the demons give intellectual assent to that too. They give intellectual assent to a lot of things about God. Um, in fact, they would school all of us in a theology test. I mean, a, a, a demon could have attended the Bible college that I went to, sat in the systematic theology classes that I sat in, and aced all of the, uh, all of the tests and all of the papers and would have hated everything about it but still knew it. And so we can take from that, okay, knowledge is not enough. Knowing theology is not enough. Intellectual assent is not enough. Faith is more than that. Here's what it is. It's believing and trusting in someone or something to a degree that you are putting all your hope in that thing. You are putting all your hope in that person. You are laying all your hope on that thing. So a good illustration of this is the simple act of sitting in a chair. I, I can assure you, uh, probably none of you came into this auditorium this morning and carefully inspected your chair before you sat down in it. You didn't, you didn't, you know, test the, the structural integrity of it, make sure all the joints were sound before you sat down. No, you just sat down and you put your whole, basically your whole weight onto that chair, and even now as you're sitting there, you're putting all your weight onto that chair. When we believe, it, it, it's very similar. When we exercise faith, we are putting our whole selves onto something or onto someone, all of our spiritual weight, so to speak. That's what faith is. All right, so that's faith. Now, what are works? He also talks about works a ton here. Um, we can be tempted to make works a lot of different things here. Um, we, we might say that works are just general uh, doing good to others, philanthropy, benevolence. Uh, we might say that works are the spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, prayer. Uh, we might say that, that works are, um, man, overcoming sin, overcoming besetting sins. None of those are wrong. All of those could be works, but I think we can get a little more specific in that, especially in this passage. Um, when the Bible talks about works... It's, it's pretty common that, the Bible, that, that when it talks about works, it's also talking about the law in some form. So, uh, works of the law is kind of a common phrase used in the Scriptures. And wouldn't you know it, James has just finished up talking about the law in the previous verses, verses 8 to 13. So, I want you to let your eyes go up to verse 8. Verse 8 says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And he continues to go on and talk about the law. But here's, here's what I want us to get. Um, we're going we're to say that works, for our purposes this morning, works are expressions of love. Works are what we do out of love. Love for God, love for people. Those are the first, those are, those are the two great commandments that Jesus said. How, how do you sum up the law, Jesus? Love God and love people. When we do that, those are the works of the law. Those are works, loving God and loving our neighbor. Now, in this passage, we might be tempted to think, as we just maybe skim it and read over it, we think, Okay, so James is comparing here faith and works, right? He's, he, he's looking at faith on the one hand and works on the other hand. Um, 
almost putting them against each other. And, and let's be clear, James is not doing that. He's, in fact, that's the very kind of idea that he's addressing because he, he says in verse 18, um, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Um, and I don't think James was making this up. I think he was really hearing people saying this. He was encountering brothers and sisters who were saying things like, yeah, well, I mean, you know, some people have faith and some people have works, and that's okay. You know, God gives different gifts to different people, and so some people are going to have faith, some people are going to have works. There was, it seemed that this idea was perpetuating in the early church, and James wanted to address it. Address it. So, so no, James is not putting faith on one side and works on the other. He's not comparing the two of those. Here's what he is comparing. He's comparing a life of faith that results in works, a life of faith that manifests the faith through works, and a life of faith, not real faith, that does not show any works. So, what's the the relationship here between faith and works? Um, We need to get really clear on that. This passage, um, maybe you know this, if you don't, it's not a huge deal, Um, that this is a really controversial passage, like in, in just general Christian circles. In fact, the, uh, the commentary I read in preparation for this week said, this is the most controversial passage in the book of James. Have fun preaching it. It didn't say that at the end, but I added that. Um, this is a controversial passage. Martin Luther, you, you've probably heard of him, may have heard of him, a very important theologian in church history, 500 years ago, led the Protestant Reformation he didn't, he didn't even think James should be in the Bible because of this passage. He couldn't reconcile this passage with what he knew from the rest of the Scriptures. So this is controversial, and we really need to dig in and make sure we get this right, okay? So let's be clear that James is not saying that faith and works are necessary for us to, to have a relationship with God. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that salvation and if you've never heard that, that term salvation before, the Bible talks about that we've been saved, we've been rescued from sin and death through Christ. He's not saying that salvation is partially based on faith and partially based on works. The clear teaching of the Bible, James included, the book of James included, is that our salvation, we are saved through faith in Jesus and through faith in Jesus alone. This was so important to Luther and so important to the men and women of the Reformation. They they suffered greatly because they believed that the Bible taught this. They suffered at the hands of of the church leaders of their day. We are saved through faith in Jesus and through faith alone. Our works cannot add to this. Our works will never add to this. Uh, It's not that our works can make us less in need of being saved. Our Bible reading, our prayer, our our giving, our church attendance, our doctrinal knowledge, our, our service for others, the list of sins we haven't done, our works don't earn anything in terms of our salvation. God does, not, God does not look at those things and deem us as less in need of salvation. No, what he does is he looks at the work of his, the, the finished work of his son Jesus, and he says, is your faith in that? Is your hope in that alone? Are you trusting in him alone? We all need to hear this. 
We all need to be reminded of this continually. Whether you, you're here today and you, and you don't believe in Jesus at all, you're not trusting in Him, or, or you, you've been trusting in Jesus for a hundred years, we, we were never saved by works, nor will we keep ourselves saved by our works. We need to be continually reminded of this. And James, he's not in disagreement with any of this. If James were here this morning, he'd, he'd be nodding. I think, I hope he would be. He'd be nodding his head in agreement. Um, so what James is here is saying is, is, he's saying, yes, yes, we are saved through faith alone, but it is not a faith that remains alone. We are saved through faith alone, but not through a faith that remains alone. The kind of faith that does lead to salvation, it's a faith that shows itself in a life of works in a life of love. Now, I feel like I've explored that pretty well with you guys, but I have one more thing I feel like I need to, to touch on in the passage, and it's a particular phrase that James uses three times where he says, justified by works. Justified by works. That word justified, uh, we see that word a lot in the Bible, a lot in the New Testament, um, especially in, in Paul's writings, the Apostle Paul's writings. Um, What's justification mean? What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. Declared righteous. It doesn't mean that we become righteous. That's, that's something else. It means it's something that happens outside of us. It's a legal verdict that's handed down where we who are not righteous are declared to be righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus, not based on our righteousness because we have none. And the Bible teaches that justification, just like salvation is not by works. It's not. It's by faith and faith in Jesus alone. It's not through our our efforts of self-righteousness. Justification is not by works, but yet James says, what are you doing, James? Justified by works? What is this? I mean, that really sounds in conflict with other places in the New Testament. So, what's going on here? I could take a lot of time to explain this, I was going to take a lot of time to explain this, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to be brief instead. Um, I think a simple way that we can understand this is that when James says justified by works, he's really using the word justified in a, in a different way. Uh, not in the same way that Paul, for example, uses it earlier in the New Testament. He's not using it in a conflicting way, but he's using it in a, in a different way with a different uh, nuance. When James says justified by works, here's what I think he means. He means that works prove, show, validate the fact that a person is a righteous person, that the person has been justified, has been declared righteous because their works prove it. So, again, James is not in disagreement with, with the fact that we are saved, justified through, Jesus, uh, through faith in Jesus alone, but he also wants to say to us, that, that the faith that saves and the faith that justifies will not be a faith that remains alone. A person's faith will prove that they've been justified through their works of love. And then for the faith, the, the so-called faith, the fake faith, the supposed faith that, that does not manifest any works, James says to us, a number of things about that faith, right? That's, that's really the main point of this passage. He says that that kind of faith, 
is dead, that kind of faith is no good and useless, and that kind of faith cannot save. So I want to look at each of those here in the passage with you. Um, That kind of faith is dead, it's no good and useless, and it cannot save. First, let's look at the fact that faith without works is dead. Um, Really, if you wanted to take the whole paragraph here and boil it down to one phrase, it would be that phrase. Faith without works is dead. He says it a couple times in the passage. I want to look at it where he says it at the very end, the last verse, verse 26. Verse 26 says this, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith, so also faith apart from works is dead. The illustration is simple, right? When a person dies, their spirit goes out from them. That is, that is truly theologically what death is. It is the separation uh, of the spirit from the body. There's no longer life or spirit in that person who is dead. And James says, for the person who, who claims to believe, who claims to have faith, but there are no works that accompany that faith, that person's faith is dead. It is not a living faith. It is a corpse lying there in the casket. Well, we could say it uh, like this, tell a little bit of a story. Um, so my wife, Becky, and I, uh, we are not green thumb people. Um, we are not good with plants and landscaping and gardening. Kudos to those of you that are. Um, I, I applaud you. We're, we're just not those people. It's not our jam. Um, so the house that we lived in for our first seven or eight years of marriage, uh, we inherited with that house a lot of landscaping. And um, man, those plants were not cared for well. Uh, they, a lot of them didn't make it. And, uh, you know, we got better as, as the years went on. But those first years especially, we were a couple of kids. We didn't care about landscaping. Um, so, as you might guess, a lot of those plants died. One plant in particular, I remember, uh, I was a youth pastor at the time. Our youth group um, bought us an apple tree. We had mentioned somewhere along the way that we liked the thought of, of having an apple tree. We could plant it, watch it grow over the years, uh, eventually maybe even pick apples off of the tree with our kids. And uh, so the, the youth group bought us an apple tree. Uh, and this was around 2011, I think. Um, first year went okay. Uh, then 2012 came. And if you were in this area in 2012, you might remember 2012, we had a crazy drought. I mean, it was hot all summer, basically no rain. A lot of plants died, and our apple tree was among them. Um, it did not make it. And uh, I remember the next year kind of holding out hope a little bit, like, oh, maybe it made it. Maybe, it, maybe it's going to show some buds and give some leaves and give some, some fruit. Um, uh, of course, it, it never came. Um, and so the lack of buds, the lack of leaves, the lack of fruit revealed to us that the, fa- that the, that the tree was dead. And that's exactly James's point here. The lack of works, the lack of fruit reveals to us that there is no life in the tree and there is no life in the faith. It is a dead faith because there's no fruit coming out from it. So to be clear, think about this and notice this. The fruit, the leaves, the buds do not make the tree alive. They do not give the tree life, but rather they tell us that the tree is alive. Because here's what I could have done. I, I could have gone to the grocery store, bought a bag of apples, come home, got out my staple gun, and stapled those apples onto that tree. 
boom, apple tree, right? There's apples on the tree. There's fruit on the tree. But it's not because there was life in the tree. So, just adding fruit to a dead tree does not make the tree alive. And just adding works to a dead faith does not make the faith alive. does not make you alive spiritually. Now, hang on to that thought. We're going to return to that thought again toward the end of the sermon. But I want you to start thinking about that. And, and again, hear James's point, faith without works is dead. James also says this, not only is faith without works dead, it is no good and useless. Right at the beginning of the passage, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, what good is it? What good is it if someone says they have faith and don't have works? And the understood answer is, uh, it's no good. It's no good. He even says a few verses later, it is a useless faith. So I think this concept is, is uh, illustrated really powerfully in verses 15 and 16 with this, um, with this illustration that, that James makes. So let's read verses 15 and 16 again. Um, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So James, he gives this Kind of hypothetical example, but I can't help but think maybe he's been seeing this happening in the early church. Uh, there's a situation where a brother or sister, they're poor, they don't have the clothes that they need, they don't have the food that they need, they're in extreme poverty, extreme need. And a, then a brother or sister sees that need and, and responds to that need simply by saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled. This, this brother or sister feels content to just simply wish that these nice things would happen to this brother or sister, that, that their needs would be met, and just speak about hoping and wishing that their needs would be met, and they don't actually do anything to meet those needs. James says that they, they say, but they don't give. They say, but they don't give. They don't give the things needed for the body. I mean, it's almost a little comical, right? I mean, not, not, the, uh, not the poverty of this brother or sister, of course, but this ridiculous response. I mean, to simply send them on their way with just these warm, fuzzy, spiritual phrases to just kind of speak over them this blessing, pronounce over them this blessing. Maybe you could even say, pray for them. That might be a little bit better, like, Brother, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that, that God will warm you and fill you and that you will go in peace. But they don't actually do anything about it. And the brother or sister in poverty is going to be like, are you kidding me right now? Like, do you see what I'm wearing? Do you, do, you, do you hear my stomach growling? That's what you're going to do for me is to just say, go be warmed and filled? And before we think to ourselves, yeah, how ridiculous, right? How silly is that, how often do we do this very same thing, right? How many times are we confronted with, with needs, um, maybe here locally and obviously with um, the dawn of the internet, how, 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 how many needs we're exposed to across the world, uh, physical needs, spiritual needs, and, and we are content to simply say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll pray, I'll pray for that, I'll pray for you. And, and to be fair, sometimes legitimately that's really all we can do. But sometimes that's not all that we can do. 
Um, sometimes we don't, even, we don't even pray, right? If we're honest about it, we say that we're going to pray. Hey, I'm going to pray for you about that. And we don't pray for them, let alone give sacrificially and, and, and let an exp- a tangible expression of love come out of us, showing them that we actually love them and care about them. James says that kind of faith is no good and useless. It doesn't do anyone any good. James says faith without works is dead. Faith without works is no good and useless, and faith without works cannot save. Cannot save. He says at the end of verse 14, again asking kind of a rhetorical question, can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith, that faith that doesn't have any works, can that kind of faith save him? And the understood answer there is, no, that kind of faith cannot save. I can't, I can't soften this. I can't, I can't sugarcoat this and lessen this and make this sound less alarming than it really should because it should sound alarming to us. James wants us to perk up and listen. Hey, listen here. This is this is an imp- the importance of this can't be overstated. This is life and death. This is eternal life and eternal death. How much the church needs to hear this. How much we need to hear this, right? Because there are there are some there are many I think we could say who profess but they do not possess. That is, they profess faith in Jesus, they say they believe, but their lack of works, their lack of love, love for God and love for people, manifests, proves the fact that though they profess, they do not truly possess a faith in Christ, a faith that will save them. them. They, They claim to be Christians, but they simply are not. The scary thing about Christianity, I think this is especially true in America because it just... It just doesn't really cost us a whole lot to be Christians here in this country. Um, The scary thing is that you can so easily learn to play the part. And many do. Many many learn to play the part. You You can artificially adopt all the outward things of Christianity, say the right things, do the right things, pick up the right language, and deceive others and even deceive yourself into thinking that you are a Christian when simply you're not. How many stories have we heard, glorious, beautiful stories of of brothers and sisters, may even be your own story, that says, I grew up in a Christian home, I I grew up going to church, but later in life I came to realize I wasn't really a Christian because my life didn't show it. There were no works, there was no love for God and love for people. the, the story, a lot of times we think the, that sort of story, that sort of testimony is a boring story, is a boring testimony. It's not. It's not. In fact, I think it might be the greatest demonstration of the, the gracious saving power of God to save those who are blinded to the fact that they need to be saved because they've been immersed in the things of Christ and in the things of, of the church. Praise God for that. But it has led to them not possessing faith but simply professing it, and yet the saving grace of God is still powerful to save even there in that, in that case. So, faith without works. If it, has, if it has no works, it's dead, it's no good, it's useless, and it cannot save. That kind of fake faith will not lead to salvation. Now, James is 
is a really good um, arguer here. He, he makes a good, uh, good points. He's made good points, but he doesn't just simply say, uh, this, is, this is it and this is, uh, this is just simply the case, that faith must result in works. He roots his arguments in his Bible. He roots his arguments in the Old Testament and in a couple key figures from the Old Testament, a man named, Ray, uh, a man named Abraham and a woman named Rahab. I want to take just a couple minutes, just kind of sit in their stories, and we're going to see that what we've been saying, what James has been saying all along about faith and works, it's absolutely true, and, and Abraham's story proves it, and Rahab's story proves it. All right, let's think about this guy, Abraham. Uh, Abraham is talked about in verses 21 to 23. Um, I, I, won't, I won't read over the verses there, uh, but you can, you can see them there. Um, here's the thing about the story of Abraham. While it is a story of faith, it's absolutely, his story is absolutely a story of faith and God's promises, what we have to also notice is that it is a peak and valley kind of faith. Um, when we very first meet Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he makes Abraham a promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, a great people. In your, in your family, in your people, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham responds, he believes, he trusts God. But from there, for the rest of Abraham's story, we see him, again, peak, peaks and valleys kind of faith, wrestling with his faith. And we have to wonder at sometimes, does this guy really believe? Does this guy really trust God's promises? Because that right there that he just did, that doesn't look like he really trusts God and believes God. So let me just kind of quickly walk you through um, the ups and downs of his story. Um, so immediately after that promise, this is in the book of Genesis, um, immediately after that promise, Abraham and his wife Sarah are in the country of Egypt, and Abraham, he knows his, wife's, his wife is beautiful, and he realizes, you know what, the Egyptians are going to just, they're probably just going to try and steal Sarah from me and then kill me. So I'm going to, and so instead of protecting his wife and trusting God, here's what Abraham did. He lied and said, uh, yeah, she, she's my sister, you know, we're good, we're good, she's my sister. Um, he's not winning husband of the year for that anytime soon, right? And actually, he did it twice, not just once, um, but chronologically, this was the first time. All right, so, so definitely a valley in, in, uh, in Abraham's faith, right? But then just a little bit later, God comes to him again a second time, reiterates the promise, and he says, Abraham, I want you to look up at the stars. You can't even count them, can you? Abraham, so shall your offspring be. You're, you're going to have that many descendants, Abraham. And uh, the scriptures tell us, and, and James actually refers to this in verse 23, um, this specific verse, uh, the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God. He trusted God when God said this, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was, he, he was in that moment justified by faith, justified through his faith. It's a great moment in, in, in Abraham's faith, right? But then right after that, Abraham and Sarah, they still haven't had that son yet, and so Abraham says, you know what, God, I think you need a little help, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands and he sleeps with his wife's servant, Hagar, and they conceive a son together. Abraham thinks, God, 
I, I'm not seeing a son here. I got I to gotta help you out. And again, we're thinking, man, does this guy really believe? Does this guy really trust God? God, a little bit later, he comes to Abraham a third time. He, he gives him the promise again. Actually, at this point, his name was still Abram, and, and God says to him, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. Abraham literally means father of a multitude. Abraham, you're going to be the father of a multitude. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Trust me, it's going to happen. But here in that account, Abraham and his wife Sarah laugh at God and laugh at the promises of God. In fact, that's, as, as, uh, as it moves on and, and the promised son is born, Isaac, Isaac's name means laughter because they laughed at God. So I want you to see, the, and I want you to see how Abraham's faith story, I'm sure, is similar to your story and to my story, the peaks and the valleys. But eventually it happens. Finally, the promised son, Isaac, is born. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And I think that Abraham has to find, think, be thinking, finally, we made it. Yes, God kept his promise. My, the, my son is here. And, and God, through this son, is going to make a, a great family for me, a great nation, a great people. But then something totally unexpected happens, I think safe to say. God comes to Abraham, not, not to reiterate the promise, no, to say, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac that you love, and I want you to go and offer him as a burnt offering. I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. I want, I want you to take this son who embodies all of your hope in my promises, and I want you to go take his life and sacrifice him. And Abraham, man, peak and valley faith, right? I mean, this is going to be a valley for sure, right? No, at this point, Abraham believes and trusts God. He takes his son, again, who, who embodies all the hope that, that, that he has in the promises of God, and he puts his son Isaac on the altar, and as he has the, the knife in the air and he's ready to take his son's life, God stops him and he says, Abraham, no, don't, don't hurt the boy now I know you trust me. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he provides a ram uh, in, the, in the bush, uh, provides a ram for Abraham to offer instead of Isaac. So, why the story, and, and you understand, I, I gave you a lot of details about Abraham's story there that aren't even in James 2. What James 2 refers to specifically is that last uh, part of the story, the story of Abraham and Isaac. So why that part of the story? Well, you can see, right, that, that all along the way we've been wondering, okay, does this guy really believe? Does he really trust God's promises? Yeah, I know it says that he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, but man, it sure doesn't look like he believes, sure doesn't look like he's been justified and that he really trusts God and has real faith. He slept with his wife's servant. He sold out his wife two times. He, he laughed at God. This guy doesn't believe. And James brings up this story to say, no, no, he did believe. He does, he, he, he had faith. We know he had faith. And how do we know? Because his faith had works. He was willing to take his son, his only son, and take his life, the son who embodied all his hope in the promises of God, because his faith 
wasn't in Isaac. His faith was in God. And it probably was in Isaac back earlier in the picture, earlier in the story. But no, his faith was in God. Isaac wasn't his God. God was his God. He believed and trusted that God would keep his promises. So, Abraham, a a perfect man? No, absolutely not. But a great demonstration of what James is teaching us, that faith does work. Faith will have works. That was the case with Abraham, and that was the case with Rahab. Rahab's story. I love Rahab's story. It's a beautiful story. Here's the thing that we should understand about James bringing up both Abraham and Rahab. They couldn't be more different from each other, especially in the, in the eyes of a Jewish person. First of all, you've got Abraham, a man, and, and Rahab, a woman, okay? Not a, a big deal to us, maybe, or not as big a deal to, to, a, to that culture where women were so devalued, treated as second-class citizens. Major difference there, right? A man and a woman. Uh, not only that, Abraham, a Jew, and not just a Jew, but the father of the Jewish people, and Rahab, not a Jew, a Gentile, outside of the, the people of God, a woman from the city of Jericho. Abraham, very wealthy, very influential, had, had tons of livestock and tons of servants and, and uh, tons of wealth. His servants even functioned for him as, a, as like his own private army at, at one time, which is, which is nuts. Rahab, a prostitute, living a life of survival by letting men use her and abuse her and treat her like a piece of property. And, and let's be clear here about Rahab. No, no little girl dreams of growing up and becoming a prostitute. Um, you grow up and become a prostitute because you have a story of being treated as an object. You have a story of pain and use and abuse, and I can't help but think that that was Rahab's story too. And yet, despite all these differences between Ahab, Abraham and Rahab, James is saying to us this, from the greatest to, in your eyes, the least, it's always that faith results in works. It was that way with Abraham, and it's that way with Rahab. Let's, let's dig into Rahab's story really quick, okay? Um, this is in the book of Joshua. This is several, uh, several centuries after the time of Abraham. Uh, God's people, he, he has rescued them out of Egypt. They're coming into the promised land, and Joshua is their leader now. He sends two spies, two messengers, the text says, um, into the city of Jericho and uh, to kind of spy things out, scope things out. And these two spies find refuge in the home of a prostitute named Rahab. When the king sends out his men to find these spies and they come to Rahab, she hides them and she covers for them. And we get a really clear glimpse into, uh, into Rahab's faith when she says, um, this is Joshua 2.11, she says, this is a direct quote, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab, though she was an outsider of the Jewish people, she knew, she, she'd heard the stories of how God had led his people out of Egypt, part of the Red Sea, She believed that this God was God of heaven and earth. And later, a few days later, when when, uh, Jericho fell, walls came a-tumbling down, right? It's a song reference in case you're like, what is that? What are you doing? Um, No, when when Jericho fell, it was Rahab's family that alone was spared 
in Jericho, all because of her faith to just simply hide the spies. Um, and what I love about Rahab's story is not is the fact that it didn't end with Rahab, that, that God was not done weaving together the beautiful tapestry of Rahab's story um, that, that, and her legacy, because from Rahab, Rahab had a son named Boaz. Boaz married a woman named Ruth. That's in the book of Ruth in the Bible. Um, and, and from there, a few generations later, came a man named David. You may have heard of him, the greatest king in the history of Israel. He had kind of a story with a giant as well. He came from the line of Rahab, and generations on down, uh, down the road came the king, the savior, the rescuer, Jesus Christ himself, came from the line of a prostitute in Jericho. Her simple act of faith, hiding the spies, she knew that God, that, that, that their God was the true God, that he was her God, and it was out of that faith that she, um, that she acted. Her faith wasn't just talk and speech. It was active, it was alive, and it did good for the spies. It did good for others. All right. Now, I know my time is, is running, uh, running out. I have basically um, two final questions to kind of work through. Um, I want us to just pull back and ask, okay, what does all this mean for us? And so these two questions I want us to think about. One, why is it that faith results in works? I mean, James tells us that's the case, but why? Why is it that faith results in works? And then secondly, how should I respond to all this? Okay, that's where where we're going here. So, So why does faith result in works? Remember how we defined works earlier in the sermon, that works are our expressions of love, our expressions of of keeping the two great commandments of the law, loving God and loving our neighbor. But here's the thing about love. Love begins with God. God is love, the Bible teaches us. And so, so we have no ability to love apart from Him and apart from His movement of love toward us. Our love is a response to His love that He showed first. The Bible teaches that over and over and over again. Our love is a response to His love. Our works of love are a response to His work of love toward us. And what was that, what was that work of love? How has God shown and demonstrated His love for us? I love that, that Abraham and Isaac is referred to here in James because that's a perfect allusion to the great display of God's love. Because their story points to a greater story. Their, points, their story points to another father and son, a father who, who did not hold back in the end, but gave up his only son. His son was sacrificed. He did crush his son. God the Father did not withhold his son, Jesus Christ, but sacrificed him, offered him up, crushed him, poured out his holy wrath and punishment on him that should have been for us. We had earned that. We had deserved that. We deserved that. And he did that all because of his love for us. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's crazy that God loves us that much. I, I have a son, and I don't think I could sacrifice my son for someone else. And that's what God has done for us. When was the last time that, I know that you know this, right? God loves you. It's, it's Christianity 101. 
But when was the last time that the love of God for you moved past just knowing it to, to where you feel it in your gut, to where it overcomes you and overwhelms you? Wow, God loves me. The creator, the judge of all the universe loves me. He, and he doesn't just love me, he loves me with the same love that he has for his perfect son, Jesus, because I'm united to Jesus. He delights in me with the same delight that he has for his son, Jesus, because I'm united to Jesus. And when we get that, when we fully take that in, the display of God's love for us, when that comes on us powerfully and we are undone by it and overwhelmed by it, we can't help but believe, we can't help but trust God and His ridiculous love for us. That's faith and we can't help but love. When we, when we feel and get that love, we can't help but respond with love back to God and then love for others as well. So here's what we can say then. Faith results in works because love results in love. Faith results in works because love results in love. What I'm saying is God's love for us, as we trust Him and as we believe on Him and trust His love, it will result in God's love moving out from us and through us in works of love. So therefore then, there is a a right and a wrong way to respond to this. So how should we respond to this second question? Um, the wrong way to respond to this passage would, would be to simply say, okay, okay, I, I get it. Works, right? I got to go out here. I got to go out from here and I got to do some works. I mean, this passage talks about uh, giving to meet the needs of the poor. So um, man, I, I got to go home and, and find out what I can give to the poor or what I can sell so that I can money to give to the poor. Um, let, let's, let's do it, James. Show me the works that I got to go do now. Uh, let's make the list. Don't you just, I, I feel that. I feel that well up inside of me. Like, okay, that's what I got to go do now, right? That would be a wrong way to respond to this text, to this sermon. Not because doing those things would be wrong. They're not wrong, of course. The problem is they're built on the wrong foundation. They're built on a foundation of, of, of duty and a foundation of I have to rather than a foundation of love. I'll tell a quick story here. Um, so Becky and I and our family, when we were moving to Alton a few years ago, uh, we were looking for homes to buy in Alton, and uh, we almost bought a house, um, even signed a contract on it, almost bought a house that had a foundation issue. Um, the homeowners, uh, the, the sellers, they had tried to cover up this foundation issue. In the basement, they had put up one wall of drywall. I mean, that should have been a red flag to me sooner than it was. Um, and so we talked with the sellers. We tried to find out, okay, what's going on behind this wall? And they were really reluctant to let us know what was going on behind this wall. So we, so we walked away from it, of course, and, and found a much better home. Uh, anyway, so we praise God for that. My point is this. A house with a bad foundation, it's just a bad house altogether, right? And works that are built on a bad foundation are not the works that God wants from us. They're not the works that he's after with us. The foundation of our works is not duty. It's not I have to. It's his love for us in Christ. So, so hear this. The primary response to this passage is not 
okay, I need to go out and do more works, the response is, I need to know that I'm loved and I need to sit in and rest in the love of God for me in Christ. And then the works will come. That's it. I I know that's not a nice, clean, hey, go out and do this thing kind of application, but I really believe that's what James is calling us to. He doesn't want us to just add works onto our faith. That's not the point. He wants, to, he wants to challenge our faith. He wants to say, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that God loves you with a crazy love, with a ridiculous love? Do you really believe the gospel? Remember, there are wrong ways that we can get fruit onto a tree, right? We can go out, we can buy some fruit and staple some fruit onto that tree, but there's only one way for a tree to truly bear fruit and produce fruit. It's when that tree gets its roots down into the soil and draws on the source of life. And as it draws on the source of life, the fruit will come. And, and my friends, as we draw on the source of life, the source of life being the gospel, the love that God has for us in Christ, the fruit will come. The fruit of works will come. The fruit of love will come. All right, one more thing I want to say here. I know the time is getting away from us. One more thing and then we'll be done. I want you to notice with uh, what James is saying here, I want you to notice the risky nature of, of works and the risky nature of love, especially when you think about Abraham and Rahab. I mean, the, the risk was obvious with Abraham, right? I mean, he's, he's got to sacrifice his own son, um, with Rahab, it was, it was not only her getting caught by the king um, and the leaders of Jericho, and, and what would they have done to her had they found out that she was hiding the spies? They wouldn't have just thrown her in jail, probably. Uh, they would have done much worse things to her. Um, and she had to be thinking, too, what about these spies? Uh, what if I let these men into my home and they do to me the things that men always do to me? use me and abuse me and treat me like property. I want you to see that the works, they didn't stay, the works for Abraham and Rahab didn't stay nice within the confines of their comfort zone. It was risky, risky works, risky love, but it was, it was God's love for them and his promises to them and, his, and their trust in him that led them to do these risky works. And guys, it's going to be the same for us. Um, so as we think about how we should respond to this, we need to be ready because, man, if the love of God truly comes on us powerfully, that's when we're not really concerned about our comfort zones anymore. That's when we're not concerned about being comfortable. We're, we're ready to take risks. We're ready to make sacrifices. We're ready to take up our crosses and lay down our lives because we know that we are loved with a crazy, ridiculous love. And we want to respond with love to God and to others in works. All right, guys, um, we're, we're going to wrap up there. I wanna, we're going to have a time of response, a, a brief time of response probably, I'm sure. Um, there's going to be some reflection questions on the screen. Just take these next few moments and, and sit in what God's been saying to you uh, through his word this morning. And then ultimately, um, we'll respond to his word by sharing communion together. Let's go ahead and pray first. Father, I thank you for the book of James, and I thank you for, man, I first thank you for the love that you have for us in Christ, that you, like 
Abraham did not withhold your son, gave up your son for us, that we could be known by you, loved by you. God, I pray that our primary response, our first response, our first impulse from this passage would be, I need to know the love of God more deeply. I need to know your love more deeply. Um, God, don't let us go from here and, and staple fruit onto the tree. Don't let us go from here and, and staple works onto a, a, a dead faith or a, a stagnant faith. God, God, help us to sit in your love for us. And God, then, would you, would you pour out of our lives love and works for people? Um, God, may that be true of us. Work that in us. God, thank you for this time to, to sit in your word together this morning. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.